Today's episode is brought to you by SearchPress. For almost 50 years, SearchPress has delighted crafters with detailed instruction books for knitting, crochet, sewing, quilting, fiber crafts, painting, and drawing. Authors Debbie Shore, Sarah Payne, Claire Gelder, and Lorna Bateman have new best-selling titles to satisfy your sewing, quilting, crochet, and embroidery needs. Check them out at searchpressusa.com. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 150 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about running a brick and mortar and online yarn shop with my guest, Laura Zander. Laura is the co-owner of Jimmy Bean's Wool. Along with her husband, Doug, she worked as a, they both worked as software engineers during the dot-com boom in the San Francisco Bay Area. And when they saw the boom begin turning into a bust, they quit their jobs and moved to Lake Tahoe to begin a new adventure, opening a small yarn shop. But today, Jimmy Bean's Wool has been named one of the 5,000 fastest growing private companies in the U.S. And Laura is one of Ernst & Young's entrepreneurial winning women. She was invited to the White House for a forum addressing the American Jobs Act, where Jimmy Bean's Wool was recognized as a notable Nevada business. When not knitting or working, Laura spends her time on the ski hill, running, playing tennis, or relaxing with Doug and their 10-year-old son, Huck. Laura Zander, welcome. Oh, thank you. That sounded really fancy. You made yeah. me sound really awesome. Well, wow. You're, you're fancy. I can't wait and to awesome. meet me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm excited to hear your story. It's really an incredible one. And um, Jimmy Bean's Wool is a really incredible business and one that I think you really built accidentally, it sounds like. I mean, it yep. was not something that you were like, you know, from being a little kid, being like, I just want to grow up and. <laughs> have a yarn business Um, you know it it came about in a roundabout way and I think it's a neat story so before we get into it though if you could kind of describe for people who maybe come from more of a sewing background and sort of don't necessarily know that much about Jimmy Bean's Wool can you sort of explain the scope of what it is like today like what do you sell where are you located what are you all about right now what does it look like oh that's a great question um okay so right now 17 years in we have about 20,000 square feet so we have a big warehouse industrial space kind of by the airport in Reno Nevada um and the front section of the warehouse let's say about 4,000 square feet of it is a retail store Um, you know, kind of like a quilt shop, but it's a yarn shop, um, with different accessories, of course. And then the rest, the other 16, 17,000 square feet, uh, we have a few offices, but it's mostly just yarn and boxes, you know, and we have shipping and receiving and the majority of the business that we do, um, is online. So probably about 95%, um, of our volume is going out the back door, you know, through shipping packages. But we also, what's different now versus years ago is that we also have a significant number of subscription services. 
Um, and our subscriptions are a little bit different than other people's and that we're kind of crazy or maybe I'm just crazy and other people kind of follow along. But we do um, in, you know, in quilting terms, it's kind of like creating fat quarters. So we take balls of yarn and we break them down into smaller balls of yarn ourselves because the manufacturers won't do that for us for the most part. And then we create projects out of these little teeny tiny balls of yarn so that you get to, you know, you get more for your money um, and you get to try out lots of their samplers, try out lots of different kinds of yarn. So we have a little, we have a couple of offices with people that are winding yarn and then assembling these kits and, you know, we ship out thousands of these a month. So it's a combination of, you know, stuff that we create ourselves now. We call it alchemy, yarn alchemy. Um, and then we have stuff that we just buy from our manufacturers and ship out. And then we have the retail store, which is primarily, I would say maybe 50, 60 percent of it are um, are tourists, I guess, or, you know, destination type traffic. We're right next to Lake Tahoe and um, about four hours from San Francisco. So we get a lot of people who come and travel here just to see the shop we have in in the shop we have now that you know we're in nevada um where gambling you know is kind of it's known for gambling so we have a slot machine so a working slot machine that we bought from an old casino and you know if you when you buy something you get a token and you get a pull on the slot machine and then we have a claw machine and then we're working on you know kind of creating a yarn carnival so that there are lots of games and fun things for you to do when you come visit Okay, right. And um, have you heard about Missouri Star Quilt Company? Yeah, yes. Do you see like some resonance between Jimmy Bean's Wool and Missouri Star? Um, I wish. I mean, I'm so envious. Uh, I've got definite business envy of what they've accomplished and what they've done. But they're truly an inspiration. Um, And I would love to continue down that same path. So sure, there is a little bit, but I think that they're much more accomplished than we are. Okay. I mean, it just reminds me of it in some way in that they've got a huge online presence. They've got a destination store that's a little bit like out of the way. People make a, you know, pilgrimage to come visit, shall we say. Um, And YouTube, which we'll talk about. I don't know. There's just, to me, there's like a little bit of a, and they're known for uh, fat quarters and it sounds like you're getting, you know. So anyway, there's just, to me, I was like, hmm, that's a little bit similar. There is. It's funny, actually, when I I was a blogger for the New York Times for a while, one of their 10 small business bloggers, and my editor, um, this was Missouri Star Quilt kind of came about. And I think one of the owners or one of the original family is actually from Reno. And so my editor, Lauren, was um, he's just like, have you heard of this company before? And they had just kind of started to get some traction because they were just starting to do the YouTube stuff. Um, and yeah, so I've been introduced to them for quite a while and I've been following their story. They've done a phenomenal job. Okay. Okay. Interesting. All right. So that kind of gives people a sense of who you are and what it is that you have and, and what it is that you do. And what is your official sort of title or role in the company at this point? Oh, that's a great question too. I don't know. I'm like, I ask the staff all the time. I'm like, what do you guys want me to do? You know, <laughs> what, is, what is my job? Cause you guys do so everything, everything so well. Um, you know, I call myself, we've been calling it instead of like chief, you know, CEO, I'm the CKO, the chief knitting officer or the chief knitter. Um, right now my job has morphed a lot depending on who I have here. Right now, my job is really to explore new things for us to do. So um, 
you know, new areas that we want to get into and then going out and being at the trade shows and doing podcasts and speaking um, and, and meeting people and kind of figuring out what's going on in the industry. And then I do all the financial stuff as well. So I'm the one who loves the spreadsheets more than anybody. So I love, uh, you know, I guess I'm kind of our CFO in some ways. Okay. And Doug, your husband, um, he works in the business with you. And um, what is his role? He is, he is, if we were in the Bay Area, he's what you would call the CTO. Okay. Um, so he has built all of our systems from scratch. And systems so meaning like the website and that Every sort of computer system, inventory okay. management, point of sale, yes. Got it. Okay, got it. All right, so now we're going to go back <laughs> yeah. and talk about how it is that you got where we are today. So, because it's, it's, it's really kind of a fascinating story. So you, um, you grew up, you were raised by, by just your mom, is that right? Yeah, that's so funny. Yes, yes, I was. Okay, and did you grow up in the South? I did. I grew up, um, I was born in Virginia, uh, Washington, D.C., and then ended up in North Carolina, Primarily. Okay. And you were in a trailer park and then moved to like some big, huge apartment building of some sort. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And like you hired a private eye. (laughs) I like to do research. I'm a good researcher. All right. So you were in this apartment building and, um, and, but you were, you were always pretty like industrious. It sounds like you were like, a, a you strike me as someone who's just like a really hard worker. I don't know. So, um, so talk, talk a little bit about like that growing up, especially in the apartment building around sort of the way that you um, would like sort of knock on doors and make money as a kid. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny. These are stories that have kind of come to me in the last 10 or 12 years um, and have really illuminated why I ended up working for myself because I didn't realize these qualities about myself. But yes, so we moved from the apartment or from the trailer park, um, moved up into this huge apartment complex. Uh, it must have been 50 buildings and two and three stories, eight to 12 apartments per, um, per building. And most of us were latchkey kids, you know, single parent families, a lot of drug abuse and alcohol abuse and um, violence and stuff. So we're in Raleigh, North Carolina, is where I spent um, kindergarten through like sixth grade or so. And then we ended up going, moving up to a townhouse. Uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> we were hoodlums, you know, we were little harem scarum ragamuffin kids who ran around barefoot and dumpster dove, you know, and, and just tried to get whatever we could uh, having fun and had no supervision. So we would, my friend Kelly Thompson, he was one of like the pack of us. He would stand, we were right, we lived right near an A&P um, grocery store. So we would actually travel through the, the sewers, the dry sewers under the highway and then could pop out, you know, we could get down into the sewers in between the apartment complex and then pop out right next to the A&P. And Kelly would take orders for things to steal from the A&P. So he'd be like, okay, what do you guys want? You know, <laughs> so we'd want some hubba bubba and and I'd get them to steal me nerds. And I'm like, okay, get some nerds. So he'd get me nerds and I would dump these nerds into a big Ziploc bag and had a tablespoon, you know, one of these little collections of teaspoons and tablespoons. And I would sell the nerds by the tablespoon. So here I am, I'm, you know, in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, like I'm a little like sugar dealer, <laughs> you know, I'm running around selling them for a quarter, a tablespoon to all my little friends. 
Um, but then I would also, I learned that I could make more money, you know, learning on the job by, I would just go from door to door and I would knock on these apartment doors and looking back, I mean, it's probably not the safest thing to do, but it was the seventies, um, and early eighties. So I would knock on door to door and I'd just, I'd say, Hey, what can I do for money? You know, can I, and I would have all kinds of odd jobs. It was awesome. You know, there were a lot of elderly people that lived there. So I would just like sit with them and watch TV with them, you know, or I'd wash their dishes or I'd carry their groceries in, or I'd wash their windows or vacuum their carpet. And they'd give me a dollar here and a dollar there. And I eventually wisened up and realized, and this is horrible and I I shouldn't say this, so you might want to edit it out. But, um, I eventually realized that if you just knocked on the doors and said, Hey, can I have a quarter? they would just give you a quarter. And I'm like, I don't even have to do the work. I can just like go door to door and, you know, like make almost as much money just kind of asking for it because I had the audacity to ask, you know, nobody else was doing it. And it turned out to be a, um, kind of a great life lesson. I don't suggest now, you know, I don't go and just ask people for stuff, but what I've learned is, you know, the answer is always no, if you don't ask. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, and we're going to swoop back around to to that, especially around um, press, because um, yeah. that totally uh, it comes in handy later. So, <laughs> um, okay, so so that that there's some really uh, enlightening stories about what where you came from. So, um, so you did go off to college, and but you didn't really know necessarily like what it is you wanted. It sounds like you didn't really know what it is you wanted to study, and kind of jumped around a bunch when you were in college. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I was. My mom was out of the picture. You know, I by the time I was late in high school, um, for a period I was living by myself, and um, she was kind of in and out of institutions, and. So I had to kind of navigate this whole college thing, paying for college by myself, figuring out what it looked like. And so I went in pre-med thinking that that's, you know, maybe that would be my out. Um, and then ended up being, then realized I didn't like biology. Uh, so I went into accounting and then ended up really fascinated. And again, you know, um, if you're a psychologist listening to this, you, I'll give you my email address later and we can talk. But <laughs> Um, I ended up being really fascinated with criminals. So thought that I wanted to be in the FBI. So I was pursuing an accounting degree. I ended up moving to Texas after my first year of college because things had gotten so, um, toxic, I guess, in North Carolina. So my father lived there and I would go visit him once a year or so. So he's like, come move out here. So I moved out there and I went to this criminal justice school. I lived in this town that had 14 prisons. Um, Death Row was there in Texas and uh, ran track there and was able to graduate really quickly. Um, I knew how to kind of work to the system and was able to use all these credits and get out in a couple of years. Um, And I did an internship with the alcohol, tobacco, firearms because I thought, again, I wanted to be in the FBI. I wanted to be in Secret Service, perhaps. Um, so did an internship with them for about six months and that's where I actually learned how to crochet and that's where kind of the making stuff started. Right. So Um, somebody on the staff there taught you how to crochet and before then you didn't really do that kind of crafty stuff. I didn't. No, no, I'm a Tom and I'm still, I mean, I'm a tomboy. Um, you know, I played, I ended up playing rugby in college. Um, and after college I, you know, growing up where I grew up, we 
we played with Barbies, but mostly we like beat them with a hammer and blew them up. <laughs> um, you know, again, psychologist, you know, do what you will with that. <laughs> but yeah, no, we played football. I've gotten in lots of fist fights. You know, we were just little harem scarum kids. Right. Okay, so somebody on the staff there, who was it who taught you how to crochet? It was the secretary. Um, and I'll just, it was an African American woman who she and I just became really good friends. And she kind of took me under her wing. I was 19 at the time. Um, it was my, again, I graduated college early yeah. and, you know, had had kind of a mess of a, a childhood and a teenagehood. So she really took me under her wing and kind of mothered me. Nice. Uh, and this was part of it. So in my, in some ways, it was kind of like my mom teaching me how to crochet. And and then what happened? You sort of changed careers because you didn't end up working in criminal justice. You ended up out in the Bay Area working at a tech firm. So something happened here. <laughs> yeah, I went to, I had always done well in school. Um, that's, I think learning is what I'm good at if I'm good at anything. Um, and taking tests. So I'd always done really well in school. So I got a full ride to get a master's degree in political science and criminology at Washington State. So I went up there. I did that. That took me nine months. Um, and then I got a full ride to get a PhD at Penn State um, in the same field. So like criminology and statistics. So I went to Penn State and I worked on that for about a year and just I didn't love it. You know, I wasn't passionate about it. Um, and ended up, my father had gotten a job in software. He was, had been a software engineer, you know, his whole career in California. He had just moved to Sacramento and he's like, come out here. I can get you a job paying $35,000 a year if you want to be a tech writer. Um, and I had done that in the summer for him before where I would take his code and then kind of, um, demystify it, if you will, translate it into English. You know, I would say this function does this and this function does that. So he, I jumped at it. I'm like $35,000 a year. This is in 1997. I was just like, whoa, I'm rich. You know, so I went out there, um, moved to California. I, and I immediately met my husband. He was working at the same, on the same job for a different company. So met him within just a couple of months. Um, and I really loved the challenge of software. So I went from being a tech writer, I immediately started taking classes. And I'm a little bit uh, ambitious, I guess, or I go a little over the top. So I'm working seven days a week. I'm taking three classes at a time, you know, trying to catch up and was able to transfer into being an engineer within about six months. Um, and the timing was right. You know, it was the dot-com boom, 97, 98. So left Sacramento um, and moved to San Francisco within about a year um, and worked as a software engineer. And Doug was in San Francisco as well. So we lived there together um, and ended up getting married. I see. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really good timing. And um, and then, of course, the bubble burst. Um, you know, yeah. it was that was this crazy moment. Um, yeah. And uh, in the Silicon Valley. So um, and so did you did you guys have a second home or have like a had you been coming out to Lake Tahoe area before this or why did you decide to move out there? Like what what brought you out there to Nevada? Well, so Doug introduced me to skiing and to um, camping and mountain biking and doing all these things. So I was 23 when I met him and 
we started going doing all this stuff. So we would go up to Mount Shasta and climb and I was crocheting, you know, I was crocheting all the time, like all the, you know, on the drive there and then on the hike um, up, I'd have it in my backpack and stuff. And so really fell in love with the mountains, which was something I had not experienced before. So we living in San Francisco being, you know, 23, 24 years old, um, we couldn't afford a house. Uh, we couldn't afford an apartment in the, in there, but we ended up finding a house in the Lake Tahoe area outside of Truckee that was like $200,000. It was $235,000, I remember. So we decided to buy that. We're like, you know what? We'll rent in San Francisco and right. then we can be first time homeowners just up there. I see. And it okay. was, you know, and it was a little shit box. I mean, it didn't have a, it didn't have heat. You had to take a snowmobile in. There was no, you know, they didn't plow the roads. Um, so it was an adventure. It was actually our, the backyard was the sewage pond for the neighborhood. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So I'm like, I don't know. This is kind of like how I grew up. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used you know? to it. Yeah. 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 It's totally fine. And you got, you start somewhere. Right. Um, right. Okay. So you had this little place out there. And so when things turned south in San Francisco and you, you wanted to, to sort of start again, that's yep. where you moved. Yeah, Doug and I talked about it. Doug grew up in Wisconsin, in Madison, um, and he and I, so neither one of us had roots in San Francisco or the Bay Area, so we're like, what do we do? You know, now is our time. Our lease is about to be up. We both think our companies are going to go out of business, so we both think we're going to get laid off, so maybe we want to, you know, do something, take the first step. I want to take a minute now to talk with Ann Woodcock from Search Press. This is Anne Woodcock, and I'm with Search Press North America. Great, and tell me a little bit about what's new at Search Press. Search Press is, we're coming into our 50th year in business in 2020, and so we're gearing up lots of really fun events to celebrate our 50th year. We have a great suite of authors who are terrific for sewing, crafting, quilting, all kinds of crafts. Search publishes only in craft, and we do all kinds of craft really well. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about some of your hand embroidery books? Because I know there are quilters out there that are really interested in hand embroidery, and I think Search Press kind of specializes in those sorts of books. Yes, we have a great list of embroidery titles. We publish the Royal School of Needlework books and embroidery. Uh, there's a really large uh, book uh, that's just called the Royal School of Needlework Book of Embroidery. That's a fun book to start. Uh, it tells you about all kinds of stitches, stitches and gives you some nice examples for how to use those stitches. But we also publish the best-selling series called the A to Z of stitches, and that is wool embroidery, embroidery stitches, embroidery st stitches too, um, it even has smocking and seamwork. The A to Z books from uh, Country Bumpkin have a great range of stitches and how to do them. These are really fun books for if you're trying to learn how to use a stitch or how to do a stitch and where you might use them. And there are a number of titles in that series. We also have several books in embroidery about certain things. So the latest book in our list is Embroidered Country Gardens from Lorna Bateman, which is a gorgeous book about how to embroider your own country garden. And as we're in August, and perhaps your own garden is starting to feel a little bit wilted, this is a great book to pick up and stitch your own. 
Nice. That sounds beautiful. And so where should people go online to find some search press books, including those titles you mentioned? Sure. All of our books are available through major retail outlets and also craft stores. Perfect. Well, Anne, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now back to my conversation with Laura. So we actually, we really seriously talked about moving to Denver. Um, and that's where we kind of, to be honest, like in the, for 20 years, we've always kind of thought that's where we would end up. Um, but then one of us was like, well, you know, we, we bought a house. I mean, I guess we could live there. <laughs> you know, we, it had never occurred to us, you know, cause it was in such a small remote town. I mean, when we ended up moving there full time, there's no mail delivery. I mean, our, our mailing address was general delivery, Soda Springs, California, mm. you know, so you'd call the credit card company and say, Hey, you know, I need to change my address. They're like, okay, well, what is it? We're like, well, it's general delivery. You know, they're like, yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> That's um, not so an address. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, it is. Mary, the postmaster. I mean, she'll she'll give me the mail, you know. <laughs> I go in every Monday. Wow. Okay. Um, right. So you so you moved out there. And did you learn to knit as well during this time? I did. Um, great question. Uh, yes. So when, in my last job in San Francisco, before we moved, I had seen a um, I picked up a Martha Stewart magazine and I don't know why I'd gotten into this sort of making crafting kind of bent. And I picked up a Martha Stewart magazine and there was a crocheted scarf in it. And I actually hadn't crocheted in a little while at this time. And so I was like, Oh, I really want to do this. Um, I wanted to make it for my mom. Uh, she and I had started to talk again and I'm like, Oh, maybe if I make this, she'll love me. Uh, again, psychologist, if you're listening, um, so, but I didn't know where to buy yarn and it was made out of Angora, you know, and I happen to be one of those people that when I see a pattern, whether it's a quilting pattern, a knitting pattern, I have to do it exactly the way that it shows in the picture. Um, I, it stresses me out to like an infinite degree to try to do it differently. So I have to have the yarn that's in this magazine. So I'm looking for Angora. Well, pre Google, you know, this is, we had the phone book. You know, so I've got this, the yellow pages and try to find Angora, like try to find Angora yarn. There's no store under a, you know, like I looked under Angora in the yellow pages. I didn't find any stores. I looked under yarn in the yellow pages. I didn't find anything. I looked under, you know, um, fiber, you know, I looked under all these things and I couldn't figure out, you know, cause I didn't know what a local yarn shop was. I had no idea. Um, or maybe I looked under crochet. So I ended up, it was quite, it was quite the search. I ended up finding this shop called Atelier on Divisadero in San Francisco. And I walked in because previously I had just bought yarn at Walmart, you know, or at Joann's or Michael's. Um, and that was all I knew. So I walked into Atelier and it was like the angels came out and started singing. Um, I mean, I'll never forget this moment for the rest of my life. I was just like, holy shit. Like I had no idea that it, something could be so beautiful and so beautiful on so many levels, the smell, the texture, you know, the, the colors, just everything. And then the, the things that you could make, the fashion, you know, was just phenomenal. So I signed up for a class right away and, you know, I always joke that I had rugby practice on Tuesday night and I had knitting practice on Thursday night. 
Um, and I drove to both on my little motorcycle, you know, so here's this little tomboy coming in and starting to knit all the time. And I got completely addicted. You know, okay. I was knit, completely addicted. Right. So you were knitting, you were crocheting, probably knitting more than crocheting, I feel like. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you had you had that under your belt. And then when you moved out to to Nevada, um, uh, and you were also able to to build websites. So that was what you were doing for work, right? When you when you moved out and um, and started to to try to get some private clients doing that. And then you built some some websites. One for a for a um, a coffee cart company, and yeah. then and then one for a yarn a yarn company. Yep, yep, that's it exactly. Um, so I saw this ad. I had just picked up a Vogue knitting magazine um, and was kind of thumbing through it when we were, and we actually first, so where we are, we're only a couple miles from the California border. So technically we originally, we originated in California um, and then ended up moving over to Nevada. I mean, they're, the towns are right next to each other. Um, So when I started, you know, we're at our house in California and Tahoe and I'm opening, I'm thumbing through these pages and I see this ad in the back that says Lorna's Laces Yarns, Somerset, California. And it had a 530 area code. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, 530, holy cow, like she must be really close because that was our area code. So I called her like right away. And I think it was a Sunday. And I'm like, hey, hey, how are you? Like I'm a knitter and, you know, and I also know how to build websites. And I notice you don't have a website. And could I build a website for you? And <laughs> she's just like, And yeah. this was like 2001 when a lot it, of places yeah. didn't have websites. Yeah. They didn't. No. And there was – we didn't have – I mean to find her – and to figure out where Somerset was, I had to pull out like a maps. Map. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like physical a real maps. Maps. Yeah. Yeah. They were on paper. Right. Um, it was crazy. Uh, so I ended up, Lorna eventually, this was Lorna's laces, and she lived about an hour away. And she eventually said yes. She's like, you know, I'm going to sell my business. And I think that having a website will make the business more valuable. So, yeah, let's do it. So she and I, she became a mentor to me. And eventually she's like, you should open a yarn shop. Cause I, I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'm living in the mountains. Um, the technology thing is not kind of going the way that I had hoped. Um, so I was thinking, you know, do I work at Starbucks? Do I work at the grocery store? I'm kicking myself. I'm thinking, do I go back to school and go to law school? You know, what do you do to make a living in a small town? Um, it's not as simple as I thought it was going to be. So she's like, you should open a yarn shop. I'm like, I can't open a yarn shop. Like I've never worked. I don't know anything about retail. I don't really know anything about knitting. Um, I certainly don't know anything about yarn. And had, I was, had you ever worked retail before? Not really. Yeah. I, mean, I think I, I had little teeny tiny part-time jobs in college, like working at the bookstore. Okay. But that um, was really it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Now I had been a waitress. Um, so all through high school, that's how I paid for school. You know, it was waiting tables, okay. waiting tables and then doing like security stuff at night. So I knew the service part of it. Uh, and I loved that part. I loved the challenge of making people happy. So she introduced, she's like, let me introduce you to a couple of people that have made businesses out of yarn shops. Um, I think you can do it. And I think that, uh, I think you would really enjoy it. So I came home and I told Doug, I was like, what do you think? Should we open a yarn shop? He's like, I don't know, like, you know, figure out how much money it would cost and, and let's check it out. So I met these women that Lorna had recommended and 
she, you know, my, my, my market study was, huh, is there a yarn shop like anywhere nearby? No. You think okay. they need one? Sure. <laughs> cool. All right, let's do it. <laughs> you know? Right. And it needed, we needed $30,000, you know, for first and last maximum rent, for some inventory, for insurance. And we happened to have, you know, saved over the years $30,000. So we wiped out our savings and we did it. Okay. And we opened up. Right. And you, you, but I mean, initially really it wasn't just the yarn shop. It was a yarn shop and a coffee shop. It was. Yes. So I'm a big, um, I like to hedge my bets. Um, this is my lack of focus. And one of the reasons I didn't get the job at the, um, secret service, but, uh, that and all the, you know, um, psychology, the stuff I was talking about before, but, (laughs) uh, I like to always, throw a couple, I call it fishing. I like to throw a couple of lines in at the same time and see what bites. So seeing as this was new and this was our entire life savings and we were in downtown Truckee, which was a, um, like a resort area. We thought that a coffee shop might actually be more, do much better than a knitting shop. So when I, I traded the guys that I had built the website for, for an espresso cart machine. And then I traded Lorna obviously for some yarn and one of the rooms, it was 500 square feet. So half of it was espresso and then um, half of it was yarn. And I really started by going, you know, I'd never thought about it until just a second, but really circling back to my training in kindergarten and first grade. And I went door to door in downtown Truckee to all the businesses and said, I will deliver coffee. I will deliver coffee. I will deliver coffee. You know, call me. Um and uh, that's how I built the business for the first couple months was just going around to all the the people who worked at the shops downtown and bringing them coffee in the morning right you know, when they first got to work right and that's the the name Jimmy Beans Wool is that combination of the beans is the coffee beans exactly right yes okay and Jimmy's your nickname you're, you're Jimmy's my nickname right, right. okay yep. got it yep right all right and in this space was this space a former jewelry shop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. And the, the jewelers had left some of their fixtures. So some of the glass cases. So we covered them with a little bit of black material, the bottom plywood part. And then I put the yarn in the glass cases. I didn't know. I never, you know, I'd only been to one yarn shop in my life. <laughs> right. I didn't realize that people would might want to touch it. So <laughs> all this yarn and glass cases, you know, and it's like, Hi, can I see the sapphire yarn with the blue sparkles? Right. You know, and I pull one skein out and set it on the counter. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. Okay. Live and learn. So, so you had the yarn shop, and um, I mean, timing plays a role here because this was the early two thousands when knitting was like having a boom. I mean, knitting kind of took off in a way that, like. You know, especially there, there was a, it became really popular, especially for like celebrities in California. And there was like a, a time when uh, everybody wanted to be seen knitting and you sort of hit it right at that moment. Totally. Yep. I got really lucky. I mean, so much of our story is, and so much of the success is luck and timing. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, you know, and placement. So being in this downtown strip in Truckee, where all of these were 80% of the population of this town are second homeowners. So all of these people who are wealthy enough to have a second home from San Francisco in the Bay Area, which is one of the wealthier places in the country, maybe even in the world, 
would come on a Thursday or a Friday and these women would come into the shop and just spend, and they'd bring their friends and they would spend hundreds of dollars to make these scarves and they didn't want to stay. They didn't want help. They didn't, it, so it didn't matter that I only had 500 square feet and then it wasn't like a community center as much. They wanted to get their stuff and they wanted to go back to their cabin with their wine and sit in front of the fireplace and hang out together. So it was, it all just kind of worked out really, really well together. And then, you know, the internet shopping on the internet was very, very new. You know, Amazon was in its infancy. Zappos had, was still, you know, was still running little quarter page or eighth page ads in the back of magazines. Um, people didn't want to buy shoes online. So I have all these, these women who are not very comfortable shopping online, but they had met me, you know, we would chat in the shop. I would help them in the shop and I would tell them, look, if you want more, or if your friend sees this scarf and she wants to make one, you can order online. Like we, Doug and I just built this site so that you can order it and I'll ship it out right away. Um, and they did, you know, they, we had, we established the trust in person first. Right. Which was really um, important in the early days of internet shopping. Yeah. Yep. So timing, location, you know, all of that stuff. And then, I mean, I guess I did follow through in that somebody would place an order and I would ship it out within 20 minutes, you know, and so, and they would get it sometimes the next day. And so they're like, holy cow, their first experience is a phenomenal experience. Or they would order like two things that I knew that they, because, you know, people were doing certain combinations of things. So I know, I knew that they wanted this purple to go, these two yarns to go together, but the tones weren't correct, quite right. So I would call them and I'd say, Hey, you know, I saw you order these two things, but I think this color might be a little bit better. And so all of a sudden, like I've got this service reputation, um, and it really, I mean, it was just common sense. It's like, I'd be pissed if I'd be bummed. I never wanted somebody to be bummed when they got a package in the mail. I wanted it to be kind of the best part of their day. So I did whatever I could to make sure it got there fast. And then to make sure that it was as beautiful as it could be. Right. Okay. Right. So, so the online part of it really started pretty quickly after the brick and mortar store opened, it sounds like, because you needed it to be sort of in tandem um, sort of almost like a follow-up, basically. Um, exactly. At, at first, yeah. Okay. And then you, did you open a second location as well? I did, yeah, a couple years later. Okay. So it took us about two years. To open the second location. And then um, at what point did online sales kind of surpass the brick-and-mortar sales? I mean, clearly now you said at the start that online sales now are like 95% of your sales. But I'm wondering, I mean, clearly in the beginning, that's was the, I was the opposite. So um, do you remember when that table turned? Like when was it that online sales became thus the business basically? Um, I want to say it was about three years in. Oh, wow. Three or four years in. So pretty fast. Three or four yeah. years in, that was like 2007, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, maybe 2004 or five. Oh, earlier than that. Wow. So yeah. it was really almost right away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it went pretty quickly. I mean, again, you know, we weren't in New York City, so I'm in a town of 14,000 people. Right. So the, and even Reno is a very small town. So there's just not a ton that I can do in a retail shop. So the bar was relatively low. You yeah. Know? And were you um, one of the first online retailers of yarn? 
I don't think so. There was, okay. I mean, I remember when I started webs, yeah. um, of course, yarn.com. I mean, yep, of course they inherited that. Yeah, um, they've got it. Right. And then yarn market had started a couple of years before that. And then e-knitting, that was the big one, you know, kind of the venture funded from the tech, you know, from San Francisco, um, shop. Okay. So there was a few players, but there you were, were a few, but you were among them. We and were among them. Okay. Yep. Got it. All right. So, um, all right. And, and then you eventually though sort of consolidated. And so now you just have that one retail store. We do. Yes. So in 2007, um, our lease was up for the Truckee shop. The original had, store. Yeah. The original store. Yeah. Okay. So it had been five years and it was just, I was still living in Truckee. So I was commuting, you know, 45 minutes or an hour and you know, we get epic snow here in the wintertime. So, um, commuting back and forth to Reno and to Truckee and trying to manage the inventory. And at this point, online sales were, that was where the growth was. The other, you know, the shops were doing fine, but they weren't growing. So we decided that it would be easier just kind of lifestyle wise to have everything in one place. To have everything in Reno. And did you guys move yeah. to Reno? We moved to Reno in 2000 when my son was born. Okay. Um, so yeah. everything just kind of went to Reno and that's where yeah. it is now. Got it. Okay. Yep, exactly. All right. Got it. So um, did you, all right, I, I'm kind of thinking now about some of the the growth of the business because I know that it really did grow really fast. So, um, you know, it, it became, talk about sort of that period of time when it was really, really growing. Um, it became a million dollar business and then it became a $7 million business. It was like really that fast that fast growth period of time leading up to 2013 and what life was like during that time and, and what you were doing, how you were spending your time. Yeah. Um, it was super exciting, like really, really exciting. I mean, just full adrenaline. The, the irony is, so we had my son Huckleberry, um, in 2009 <clears throat> and I had never, I mean, quite frankly, I'd never planned on having kids. Um, but it happened and we decided to have him, uh, and it really threw a crazy wrench kind of into, as I'm sure most of you know, um, only I didn't have a model. You know, I didn't know what it was supposed to look like because I had just, you know, in some ways kind of raised myself. So um, so I'm like, why is he crying all the time? Somebody's like, well, you got to feed him. I'm like, can he feed himself? Like I fed myself when I was six months old, you know, I mean, like, what the, God, what a needy kid. Like he would drive me crazy. Um, so we had quite the adjustment period, uh, and what the irony, I guess, of that looking back is that that's when the growth really started to happen. And I think it's because I finally had to let go of some things and let other people do stuff. And as it turns out, other people are better at a lot of things than I am. And so we were able to scale a little bit more because I didn't have my hands in everything what are all some the time. Of the, what are some of the things that you let go? I know you didn't let go of the finances because it sounds like those are really a passion of yours. So um, you probably held on to, to the accounting. But what, what things did you let go of? Um, like buying the yarn, you know, so placing okay. all the orders. Yeah. That was a big one. Um, writing the newsletter. So I guess what we would now call kind of marketing and social media. You know, I did all that. I mean, I kind of did everything. I mean, Doug and I shipped packages. I mean, we would ship packages every night till nine o'clock at night. The post office here closes at 10 p.m. So probably four or five nights a week, we would do the like six to 10 p.m. shift. Um, so letting, you know, having other people do that kind of stuff. And wouldn't you know, it gave us a little more energy 
to focus on to you know explore the PR side of things and explore the growth. So I kind of got out of the day-to-day part of the business and started focusing on dreaming and doing like crazy audacious things, which ended up helping us grow a lot. Okay. And um, you forged some really interesting partnerships that I think are really neat. And just to briefly explore, um, you worked with the U.S. ski and snowboard team. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah, that was a partnership. Um, I had become friends with a president of Coates and Clark North America at the time, and they had the Rowan or uh, Red Heart yarn, but they also um, owned Westminster Fibers, which distributed, uh, well, you guys know, I mean, fabrics. So it's, yeah. you know, the Amy Butler fabric. Yeah. became, you know, great friends with Amy and Dave. Um, but Rowan yarns and all kinds of, you know, they had a, a whole, I guess, library of, of yarn products. And John Laurie and I had become pretty good friends and we were in Germany one time at one of the big shows. And I was like, ah, I just, I really, I, there's something between, there's something there with knitting and skiing. I know that there's something there. Like, I don't know. I didn't know what the words were that I wanted to use or what it would look like, but I, you know, I'm like, you know, do we, do we give the ski team yarn? Do we do yarn, you know, skiing commercials and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, we ended up chatting and brainstorming and we were like well maybe maybe we just call the ski team and see what the options are and he's like whatever you're gonna do I want to do it too you know let's figure out how to do it together nice because he he's from Canada so he likes snow I guess Um, (laughs) you know he was a hockey player right loved to ski and we could just see that it was something different and it was a different audience and in our minds skiers are one it's warm weather that's where or I mean cold weather that's where hand knit sweaters come from that's where you know hand knit hats hand knit gloves hand knit socks you know it just it fits um ski like athletes have a lot of downtime so it made a lot of sense to us that these athletes could spend some of their downtime knitting instead of watching tv you know or crocheting and I had had experience in the shop in Truckee with all of these teenage um skiers guys and girls would come into the shop locals and buy yarn because they were all making beanies most of them were crocheting beanies and what i'd learned is that they most of them do it one because there's lots of downtime but two because it's an expression of individuality so instead of going out and buying a a beanie that you can you know that a thousand other people might wear they can make one with the colors and the designs that is unique to them so, um, so they're very creative. It's a very creative group of people. So, yeah, so I called the ski team, you know, and this goes back to kind of, if you don't ask, right. you don't know. And I'm like, Hey, have you, what do you guys think about this? And they were so intrigued that they, and they recognized that we were a really small business, um, and that this was far out there, but they were like, you know, it would really be cool to have, you know, if you go to a ski event, you see all these tents. So you see a nature Valley tent and they're handing out granola bars. And then you see the, the hotties tent and they're handing out the hand warmers. They're like, it would be awesome to have, you know, a Jimmy beans or a red heart tent where you're handing out yarn and teaching people how to knit. It would just be different. You know, it would be unexpected. And we think that our consumers would really enjoy it and would be more likely to come to the events. So yeah, so they, we're like, let's do it. So we signed a four-year deal, like through the Olympics, and um, you know, went to lots of events and sponsored lots of the athletes and gave them all yarn and 
um, it was awesome. It was a really, really, really fun time. Yeah, that's great. And um, I want to talk to you about that, that sort of tenacity about asking. So going back to knocking on doors when you were um, <laughs> an unsupervised kid. But um, I, I know that you've been featured a lot in, in different um, really well-known publications. And um, I, I've seen your, you know, your profiles over the years. And, um, you know, they've gotten a lot of national recognition. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how you've made some of those, at least, happen? Um, I think people sometimes assume that those kinds of articles just, you know, fall onto your lap. You know, somebody, and sometimes they do, you know, somebody just calls you up and says, hey, I want to do a profile about you. But a lot of times what what really went on behind the scenes is that, you know, you have to go knocking on on reporters' doors and say, you know, hey, we've got a good story here. And, and you've done that successfully. So um, I, I wondered if you could tell a little bit of a story about how, how you've made that happen successfully. Oh, sure. I mean, it started with um, uh, all of these things, all of the stories that have been, maybe not all, but the vast majority of the stories that have been written or the videos that have been done um, are either a direct result of me asking, um, sometimes begging, and or, and or a connection that happened as a result of me asking or begging. Uh, and over time, I learned, I found some tools that allowed me to ask more in a more targeted manner, you know, or to find out what people were looking for. But um, it all really started with Fortune Small Business Magazine. So in 2007, um, I would go, so, you know, we had hit a million dollars in sales and I'm like, and we had two stores and we just closed the first one um, and online's growing. And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I just, I was on this kick where I wanted to be in Martha Stewart magazine and I wanted, you know, we all have these dreams, right? I want to be in Martha Stewart. I want to be in Real Simple. I want to be in Family Circle, um, you know, and I don't know how to do this. So I would call them. I would, I was trying to figure out how to do it. And at some point it clicked that maybe what I want to be in is in a business magazine because I've always kind of felt like I want to be, and again, this goes back to knocking on doors. If every kid was knocking on doors, then they're not going to pay attention to me. But if I'm the only one, you know, with the guts to do it, then, then people are going to notice me. So I'm like, do I really want to stand out and get press in a knitting magazine or a craft magazine? Right. Or do I want to get press and do I want to get press in car and driver? You know, that's always been my dream is to have, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's still my dream. Yeah. Um, I want to stand out in unexpected places. That's kind of my mantra. Okay. Part of it is because I'm lazy. You know, I just, I want to do what's easiest. So I had just gone to Costco and picked up the fortune small and I, um, as part of our business membership, we got this magazine called Fortune Small Business. It's not a, it's out of print now, but I picked it up and I'm reading it and there's an article in it about like a five page article about this, this restaurant called the girl and the fig in Sonoma. And I had just been there, you know, like three months prior. And I remember going to this restaurant and I'm like, you know, it was, it was this fancy Napa Valley kind of restaurant, which it was great. It was fantastic. Um, but for someone who doesn't have the palate to appreciate super expensive dinners, it was just a super expensive dinner, like every other super expensive dinner. Um, so I'm like, I can't believe that they got like a five page article about how great this place is. Uh, I'm like, if they can do it, I can do it. Like I never see, I started to kind of 
look back and I went to Barnes and Noble and I'm looking through all the business magazines, there are no big articles about, um, about yarn shops, you know, or about fiber. There are tons of articles about restaurants, tons of articles about factories, technology, you know, telecommunications, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, aha. So I call fortune small business. I just, you know, I grab the number that's on the, the inside cover of it. And I'm like, you know, Hey, can you guys write about me? Like, I think that if you guys wrote about them, like, why can't you write about me? What does it take? Uh, I call them, didn't get a response. I end up finding this email address for fortune small business where you can submit a story idea. So I filled it out and I was like, Hey, you know, yarn is going to photograph, you know, who needs to hear about another restaurant? You know, yarn is different. One, did you know that one in four American women know how to knit? And so it's going to resonate with everybody who reads this. It's going to be different. It's going to photograph really well. We have this great story. You know, we were software engineers and we moved to the mountains, blah, blah, blah. So I learned that, um, my, you know, my approach was, it's not about the yarn as much. It's about kind of the story. So they, they call me back you know, a couple days later. I mean, and I remember I was like so devastated. You know, I thought after the first day they didn't call me back and I'm like, oh my God, they're never going to write me. They're never going to write me. I didn't sleep for three days. And then they called me. They're like, hey, this is Fortune Small Business. We really like your story idea. We'd like to come out and write about you. And we'd like to bring out some experts to help you grow your business. So they sent out somebody from Google, which they had never done, somebody from Deloitte and Touche to talk to us about strategy. They sent a writer from um, New Jersey and a photographer from San Diego, who is now my best friend. Um, and this woman, Darcy, from San Francisco, who was a P had a PR company. And we spent a day together, uh, me and Doug and these guys. And Darcy taught me that our story is not about yarn. Our story is about our story and it's about business. And if I stopped focusing on trying to pitch, you know, this specific product that we carried to Family Circle and tried to pitch us instead, that that's where we're going to find success. Um, and that's what I started doing. You know, I started subscribing, you know, I dug into PR and I learned about PR Wire and I took a bunch of, you know, this is me. I took a bunch of classes. I read every book I could find in Barnes and Noble about publicity and marketing and pitching. And, and I just started to hit the phones and hit the email and it was my full-time job. I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, and it worked, yeah. you know, and then you have this whole waterfall cascade effect. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think that's really instructive to hear. And, but at the same time, you know, there's been some, in some way, a push that was too hard, right? So in 2013, right, um, the business was doing really well. You were at $7 million in, sale, in sales. And people said to you or maybe advised you, you know, you can scale the business to $100 million. And, right. um, and that felt like possible. And, and maybe it is still possible. I mean, it, it, you know, but it felt like it was possible in a short term, you know, time, time frame. And so you did try and you expanded into fabric um, and um, did a ton of travel and tried to, uh, to brought on a lot, a lot of staff, uh, especially in marketing and, um, and things kind of flatlined and, and it was, it was, sounds like it was kind of a scary time of, of not necessarily being able to, uh, uh make payroll the way you wanted to. And, um, I don't know, anyway, it was, it sounds like you pushed really hard and the push 
didn't work the way you had planned. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Welcome to life. Um, yeah, I, so as a result of, you know, really pushing to get all of this publicity, you know, and putting myself out there for the first time, um, I also applied for a bunch of awards as a way to kind of stand out. Um, again, not as a way, as a form of publicity, not as a way of like, Hey, look, I've got this crown on how great am I? Um, it was more like, how do I make connections? And one of the best ways that I've learned so far to make connections is to win awards and go to these award ceremonies and meet fellow award winners who happen to probably have a similar mindset to you. So it's kind of a roundabout way of networking. Um, and I had applied, mo- <laughs> here's my tenacity, um, or hardheadedness, whatever you want to call it. But, um, like small business, we won, I was the, the, we won the small business award for the state of Nevada a couple years ago. Um, but it was cause I applied for five years in a row. <laughs> You know, I'm like, you will give me this award. <laughs> like, I will keep applying until you say yes. So they finally just give it to you. So you quit bothering them. <laughs> but I, uh, I applied for this award for a couple years in a row and finally got it um, through Ernst & Young. And they have this winning women program where they pick 10 women um, in the U.S. that have high growth potential businesses. And then the goal is, which is all of this, that was all I was kind of focused on as I'm like, ooh, shiny thing, you know, I want a new shiny trophy. So I, um, and it would kind of validate, you know, I thought it would validate yarn and knitting and and the greater business world. Um, So I won, you know, I was, or I was selected as one of the women and, uh, you know, and the other, the fellow women are like, um, you know, the girl who invented, you know, Hint Water, um, oh, Spanx, yeah. yeah, uh, swell water. Uh, I mean all these like Amazing. Jessica Alba. Yeah, yeah. Like these ridiculous, like way out of my league. So I go, um, and I become indoctrinated, you know, go to all these events, um, learn a ton of stuff. Well, their focus really, you know, they're an accounting company. Um, so their focus is to try to grow, you know, what can we do to get this business to scale? to a huge company with lots of employees and then eventually go public. Right. Um, is kind of the idea. And so the, so what I'm surrounded by is, and I'm, um, I'm guessing a lot of your fellow winners had venture capital or had totally. private equity funding or something yep. like that. Yeah. And you yes. didn't yourself, you're bootstrapped. We are bootstrapped. Right, exactly. 100%. So, so there is a different culture and different pressure. It is a different culture and a different pressure. And I'm not only bootstrapped, but I happen to be married to my co-founder. And so Doug and I own this business together, you know, and then we also live together. You know, we're also, we've been together 20 years. We have a kid, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's not as, it's not that it's more complicated, I guess, maybe in some ways it's more simple, but my, my board of advisors um, or my, you know, is at home. And he had a very different vision of how he didn't want to report to anybody else. So he didn't want to take private equity. You know, right. we talked to people about taking money. I'm sure. Um, and I'm sure people have come in and said, we want to totally. buy, buy businesses entirely. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yep. And he's just like, I don't want to report to anybody else. Yeah. I don't want to take money. I don't, you know, we had talked about franchising and this and that. And he's just like, I, I'm just going to say go Doug. Okay. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, I don't. And I'm you know, I'm ambitious and I'm, yeah, no, I'm just like, this was a clash. Yeah. And it was hard. I I can hear like, 
the pressure of being in that program and then it sort of led you astray yeah. and then you had to kind of yep. rein, rein back and be like actually wait a minute that's not us and that's not what we wanted to do here and that's not our business and we need to get back to, to basics yeah yeah and I think you know fundamentally what it came down to is do I want a marriage and a family you know and a home life right or do I want to try to be one of these people right. who at and I'm not suggesting that this is what the women are, are no, like, no no but they just have a different they have a, it's a different business. It's a different, yeah. It is. Yeah. Yes. And I have read, you know, I had to have come to terms with what I want out of life. And I think my biggest fear is one of my biggest fears is I read all, I, I read a lot um, and read a lot of biographies or of, you know, of people who are on their deathbed who had great successful businesses and they say that their only regret or their biggest regret was that they didn't spend enough time with their kids growing up you know, or that they didn't spend enough time with their family. And I'm like, damn it, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm going to do. So I am, you know, every single day, it is a choice that yes, I could work harder and I could probably grow the business more. Um, but I can do that later if I so choose, you know, but right now it's time to spend time with Huck and with Doug, because that's what's going to be around me when I'm on my deathbed. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, so I just had to, you know, Doug was pushing one direction. I was getting pulled another direction. Um, I'm, a, I'm a runner. You know, I ran track in college, and I always want to go faster and faster and faster. So I had, you know, it was quite the kind of I, maybe it's mid, mid-career crisis. No, it's like a of, point of reckoning. Yeah. 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 You had to figure it out. Yep. But you did it. So good for you. Yeah. And uh, and you survived it and you're still here and the business is still here. Yeah. And so that's amazing. And um, and I, I do want to make sure we talk about some cool stuff that you've done recently, which um, two of them are acquisitions. And uh, and one of them is it pronounced namaste. I never know how to say that mm-hmm. word. Sure. I'm, tell, I'm terrible. Um, and also delicue. Is that the other one? Yeah, um, and both of one. them are like um, bags. They're like different kinds of knitting bags or crochet, I guess, project bags. Um, but they're different. Um and both really beautiful. And I'm just wondering um, why acquire companies versus sort of go about on your own and like develop those products? Oh, you're, that is, that's a great question. And I was asked that when we were deciding to do this. Um, they're like, why are you doing this? Like, why would you pay for something that, and Namaste um, wasn't, had been out of business for a couple of years. Um, why? Because the I hate using these kind of business terms, but the brand equity was so strong. Um, she had already, Kelly with Namaste had been in business for 10 or 15 years and had already worked really, really hard so that that name was top of mind for people when they thought about bags. So I didn't want to have to recreate that. Um, I wanted to just be able to kind of leverage what she had already done. And she already had a couple of products that were just, they were first of their kind. They're the best in the market. They're beautiful. They were phenomenal. So it just seemed like, you know, for the amount that we would pay for it, it would take us two or three years to do the work that she had. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So it was just cheaper, faster, easier. Um, It was a no brainer. And I mean, quite frankly, I'm, when it comes right down to it, I mean, this is where I'm either a really good business person or a really bad one. Um, People come first for me and Kelly had come to me she had to shut the business down because she was getting a divorce and she and her husband and her sister-in-law owned it together. And when, before she shut it down, she came to me and asked if I would buy it. We were really good friends. 
and I couldn't at the time. Um, but I knew that she had a little bit of debt, you know, so she still had some outstanding debt. So if I could pay that off, you know, and help her, um, and even, you know, I, I am still, you know, kicking back some money to her, you know, we pay her a royalty for some of the designs that she did. Um, so that, I felt like it was important that she built this and did such a great job building it that she still continued to benefit from it, you know, if we were able to take it um, and do something more with it. Got it. Yeah. So. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, and then the other thing, and these are so cool. So you got a patent, a patent pending, yeah. I guess it's going to go through sometime soon, but on yep. a new product that's coming out in the fall. So like in what, like next month or next month or two. Um, and these are called Jimmy Bean Smart Sticks. And it's so clever. I can't believe nobody thought of this before. Like when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is clever. So explain how this works. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. really smart. Well, they, <laughs> it is smart. They're called Smart Sticks. Um, and, you know, one of the things that really turned around for us business-wise um, is I hired a woman named Shannon Um about two and a half years ago. And, you know, when I was going through this whole Ernst and Young thing and, and really experiencing these being talked to by, uh, people who have tons more experience than I do, you know, everybody keeps saying, hire somebody smarter than you, just hire people that are smarter than you. And that's all you need to do. Surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And so I did, I hired a ton of people. I made sure, you know, that everybody that we hired had a high IQ. Uh, what I realized in retrospect after having Shannon come on board is that it's not just about people having a high IQ. Um, it's about them having experience and having done things before that you've never done so that you don't have to figure it out and I don't have to teach somebody. So I hired Shannon a couple years ago and all of a sudden the whole world opened up because here's somebody who's got 20 years of merchandising, 20 years of product development, 20 years of fabric. You know, she worked in the fabric industry and was local, um, has a similar background to me. So we get along really, really well and she's super scrappy. So all of a sudden now I have somebody who um, I can give a project to or she can come up with a project and just run with it. And it has opened up all these possibilities for us to do these new things. Wow. Um, it's phenomenal. Yeah. So anyway, so Shannon and I were in India where one of our, man, there's a manufacturer there called Knitter's Pride that we, and we sell their products. And I was knitting in the car and couldn't, um, I needed a tape measure and I didn't have the tape measure. And I'm like, does anybody have a tape measure? Nobody had a tape measure. Um, so I grabbed a sheet of paper and I folded it in half and Shannon's like, why don't they just put markings on the needles so that, you know, like, you know, I mean, your needles, a 24 inch needle. So why don't you just put a mark every inch and then, you know, you, you've got a tape measure with you. And I'm like, oh, ha ha. And that's smart, clever. Um, well, we happen to be again, serendipity. We happen to be in the car on the way to a knitting needle manufacturer. So we get there, you know, 20 minutes later and we're like, Hey guys, can you put markings on the needles every inch? And they're like, I don't know. Let's see. Well, Raj, who is the one who runs the, the factory, comes back 20 minutes later with a needle. He's like, you mean like this? And that's how it worked. We were nice. like, oh, my gosh. So we, you know, joined forces together and we called them smart sticks. And so it was Shannon's idea, you know, and it was it's this combination of we all have ideas, you know, especially all of us in the creative industry. But you got to one, you have to know who to talk to to get it done. And, you know, at this at this point now, you have to have the money to yeah. be able to buy 5,000 needles, 
you know, to get somebody. And yeah. so that's where our size has really helped us. Yeah. And they're beautifully designed. The colors are great. And you've got the crochet hook as well. And the yeah. needles come in different sizes. So, and you can patent it so no one takes your idea. And exactly. I mean, it's like, which costs a bunch of money and takes time. You need yep. legal, legal fees and all that stuff. So you, you've yep. got, yeah, you're able to do it. And that's a great point. So, um, so when will these be available for people to go by? Well, they came out actually last summer oh, okay. when we launched them. But so we have, um, I just started testing. I mean, don't tell anybody, but right. um, we just got samples of wooden ones. Oh. So um, I've been testing those all weekend, and I think those will come out in the next month or two as okay. well. All right. So yeah. people can still can already go buy them, but wooden ones are coming soon. Okay, cool. Yep. Sounds great. And um, and are you going to all the trade shows? Do you go to H&H Cologne and Creative? Yep. Did you go to Creativation as well or no? I haven't. Okay. No. But you go to CNA? I, yes, okay, I do. Got it. All right, cool. Nice. And any other ones that you go to? Or do you go um, to? Yeah, we've been going to some others in other industries just oh, yeah. for inspiration. Oh, cool. Any yeah. ones that you want to talk about? Or no? Yeah, I mean, we like we would go to the ski one. Oh, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, if you think about like all these, yeah. you know, music shows are great because it's the same kind of thing. It's a bunch of small passion led, independently owned shops. And then you've got larger companies and it's, you know, you watch how they do their social media. You watch what kind of photos they take. You know, you get so many ideas from those kinds of things. Yeah. Cool. All right. That's interesting. Music ones. I never thought about that. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. I want to um, make sure we get to your recommendations. So um, we're just going to run through them real quick. So you have uh, one to recommend, which is called the five minute journal. Um, you bought a case of them and uh, are you get down to your last one. So how does the five minute journal work? Oh, every morning. Um, it, what you're supposed to do is you open it up and every day there's a, some sort of quote, um, for the day. And then you write down three things that you're grateful for. And then you write down three goals for the day. And then you write down some sort of affirmation. You know, mine's usually like I am focused on the things that I can control in this moment, um, to try to take me out of my OCD and anxiety. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you recap and you, say, you know, you write down three things that were amazing about the day, you know, again, kind of reaffirming that gratitude. And then you write down one thing you could have done better. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a great, you know, I've learned that gratitude and all of these things, I didn't realize it. Um, and I never really understood it. And even meditation, but focus, those are you have to practice them. And it's like practicing the piano. I didn't, re I, I just thought that everybody else got it. And I didn't. Um, but now that I kind of understand that it is literally like practicing the piano, um, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I can put in the 10,000 hours. You know, I can put in the practice and be an expert at this. Yeah, exactly. And, and you've been willing to do it with your sports, right? With all, you know, you understood mm -hmm. it sort of intuitively yep. when it came totally. to being an athlete. Yep. Which a lot of people don't, you know, mm. um, and they have to, they have to sort of force themselves to, to do that. Um, when it comes to exercise, but you didn't, but, but you do when it comes to other things, sort of the sort of emotional and, and the mental stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. all, it's all kind of one and one and the same though. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And I mean, I know you love to read and also listen to lots of books. Um, so you've been reading a bunch of different books. One of them is Becoming by Michelle Obama, which is on my list. I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's definitely on there. Um, and then Dare to Lead um, and Hunger by Roxane Gay, which is also on my list. So do you want to yeah. highlight any of those? Which one uh, you want to talk about? or which one They're just all fantastic for different reasons. Um, I'm 
and I just kind of oscillate depending on like mentally and emotionally where I'm at and what I need. Um, but this dare to lead, oh my gosh, you know, from a business standpoint, holy cow, like this is opening up everything for me. Um, I just bought a couple of copies. I bought the workbook. I'm going to make everybody here. They get, they get so they're like, great. You found a book you like. (laughs) You read a lot lot of like, not self-help, but that kind of, I don't know if it really categorize it as self-help, but anyway, but you read a lot in that vein. Yes. I read a lot of, um, things that make me figure out how I can do better, whether it's from a business standpoint, whether it's from a mental and emotional standpoint, um, you know, whatever it is, I'm just constantly trying to be better. Good for you. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. But Dare to Lead's a good one. All right. I'm going to add to my list. Um, all right. And then I don't know if you pronounce it scribbed. Is that how you say it? Um, Oh, scribed. Scribed. Okay, I've been saying in yep. my head completely wrong this whole time. Um, all right, it's eight ninety nine a month, and um, you can read or listen to as many books as you want. So it sounds like you've been subscribed for a really long time. Yeah, they for some reason I think I signed up and then became my beta tester for them. So um, and who knows, maybe they have like thirty million beta testers, and it's just a way to make us all feel special. But um, it's fantastic because I'd always used Audible. Um, you know, an audible is nine bucks a book. So for somebody like me who is listening to eight books at the same time, usually, uh, it's fantastic. (laughs) And is, are the readers good? Cause the thing with audible, I feel like is they have really quality readers. Like, yeah, it's the same readers. It's the same. Oh, wow. Oh, it's the same library. Yep. I think they just have, you know, they obviously have a different financial model with the publishers. All right, my daughter is like a massive audiobook consumer, so this might be more economical oh, for us. So yeah, yeah, yep. That and Overdrive. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you guys use yeah, Overdrive. Yeah, yeah, she does. The okay. library. Yeah. Okay. All right, that's good to know. You listen to these while you're running. Yeah, or I hike with the dogs. Okay. Um, you know, so I can go. You know, I'll go two or three hours and check emails and take phone calls and stuff and then listen to books nice okay good that sounds very meditative and relaxing (laughs) that's great it's very nice yeah well laura thank you so much for taking the time to be on the wall street apps podcast i really enjoyed talking to you oh thank you i'm so grateful really appreciate it and you've been listening to the Wall Street Apps Podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, wallstreetapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Search Press is proud to sponsor this podcast and delighted to bring you wonderful knitting and crochet books for the yarn you buy from Jimmy Bean's Wool or your favorite local fiber supply shop. It's the perfect time to start winter projects from head-to-toe winter knits or make something from mini knitted cosmos to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So check out Search Press at searchpressusa.com. Thank you so much, Search Press. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.